EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by the EPP Group. On the 25th and 26th of April, follow the EPP Group Industry Days, a series of live debates with industry representatives on how to build competitive ecosystems and achieve EU strategic autonomy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Et donc sur tous ces sujets, on a oui besoin d'une Europe plus forte, plus intégrée et pour faire avancer l'Europe, il faut un couple franco-allemand de confiance. D'abord, permettez-moi de dire à Emmanuel Macron qu'il n'y a pas de souveraineté européenne car il n'y a pas de peuple européen. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico Europe in Brussels. And those were the two final contenders in France's presidential election, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, battling it out in a live TV debate just a few days before Sunday's all-important second round. Madame Le Pen. Poussé, mais Madame euh, je tiens à vous dire et à dire à ceux qui nous écoutent que Madame le débat, oui, c'est la réalité. Je suis désolé de vous dire. We'll bring you highlights and analysis from the debate in just a few moments with our podcast panel. And later in the episode, we'll hear from Gustav Gressel, an expert on Russia, Eastern Europe and military affairs at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He'll talk to us about Germany's dilemma over providing heavy weapons to Ukraine and how that impacts Germany's standing in Europe and among other Western allies. Of course, Germany will continue to be big and by the sheer size and share of votes in the council will be asked now and then, but it has lost its ability to shape events and it has lost its kind of insider status of a country that needs to be carried along with whatever you plan policy-wise within you. So stay tuned for that conversation. But first, let's get to that podcast panel with Clea Calcutt in Paris. Hi, Clea. Hi. And Matt Karnichnik joining us this week from rural Tuscany. Hi, Matt. Hello there. Buongiorno. Buongiorno indeed. But we are going to switch to French or at least to France and concentrate on the big clash between Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron, the TV debate that took place on Wednesday night. Uh, Clea, you were following it all. It was indeed a kind of clash of personalities, of ideologies. What did you make of it? What stood out? Um, you know, did anyone land a, a knockout blow? Can we say that one of them clearly won or lost? Yeah, I mean, that was what everybody was uh, was looking at, is whether um, Marine Le Pen was going to be able to land a knockout blow, um, given that she's uh, quite behind in the polls. Um, she really needed to you know, hit hard to be able to sort of reverse the trends. And I think globally, there wasn't a knockout blow. Both seemed to hold their own. Macron was very combative. Um, I think we 
He was more uh, offensive than what we were expecting because in the run-up to the debate, there was a lot of talk about how he had to be careful and not seem to be too domineering, to be too arrogant, uh, you know, especially after, you know, a lot of criticism during his mandate that he was sort of out of touch with ordinary French. But nevertheless, yesterday he really went in uh, for some big hits against uh, Marine Le Pen. And on the other hand, you had Marine Le Pen, who was trying a sort of, I thought, a a sort of double strategy. Like she was trying to attack his personality. She was trying to portray him as somebody who was hard, that um, was disconnected with the country and couldn't really sort of see the difficulties that everyday French were enduring. And at the same time, she tried to show that she was very credible, that her project was solid and that if people voted for her, uh, they were voting for something that had been well thought out. And I think that's where maybe she was less convincing. Yeah, and it seemed like she was obviously trying to learn from last time, five years ago, when there was uh, the previous duel between them. They were also the contestants in the second round. They also had a TV debate. And that was one where she seemed underprepared. She didn't seem to have a grasp of the facts. Uh, Macron was widely seen as the winner, really kind of wiped the floor with her. And this time, my impression, I think the impression of most observers, was that she did better this time. As you say, I think the the challenge for Macron was uh, not to appear too arrogant and professorial. I think at times he didn't really quite manage that, right? It did seem like there was was one point where it did feel like we tuned into an economics lecture for a little while. No, but you don't do the salaries, Madame Le Pen. And you don't do the prices, Monsieur Le Pen. Mais je, je, d'ailleurs, je ne le dis pas. Voilà. Je dis, j'enlève les charges du côté employeur, j'enlève les impôts. Mais vous essayez de faire croire que vous, vous allez augmenter les salaires de 10%. And I guess that is dangerous for him, um, right? But, but, and he definitely still had the greater mastery of the, of the detail. But I think perhaps the area where he really hit hardest, and as you say, he was, if you like, more pugnacious maybe than we expected was on Russia, where he basically went after Marine Le Pen for this loan that she had taken from a Russian bank or that her party has taken from a Russian bank and said, basically, that she was on the payroll of the Kremlin, that when she was talking about Russian leaders, she was basically talking about her bankers. What did you think of that and how did you think Marine Le Pen dealt with it? Well, I thought it was quite surprising that he went so directly into this that he used words like you're talking about your banker. Et donc, vous ne parlez pas à d'autres dirigeants, vous parlez à votre banquier quand vous parlez de la Russie. C'est ça le problème, Madame Le Pen. Alors peut-être que Marie uh, made a link between the fact that her party had not condemned the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the fact that she got that loan, which is a sort of area where I don't think he's been before. I think she knew that this was a weak point, along with her proposal to ban the veil, and I think she obviously was prepared. Um, she showed a printed-out tweet, a tweet que j'avais fait. Saying that, that back in 2014, she supported a, a free Ukraine, which I don't think it sort of sparked a whole load of memes and jokes on, on the internet. So I don't think that really sort of countered his attack. And she had this sort of outburst where she said, Oh, I'm a, I'm a free woman. Il sait pertinemment que je suis une femme absolument et totalement libre 
Because in effect, what he was saying is that she could not defend French interests. And that really cuts hard with the National Front because that's their mantra. You know, we're here, we defend French interests against the EU, against the West, against the US. And so it's somebody to come along and say, no, you don't, because basically you're, you know, a proxy Russian, you know, agent or whatever is quite tough. So that was, I think, one of the most tense moments of the debate yesterday. Yeah, and I think more broadly, we're saying just before we started recording, I, I do think one of the good things about a good debate, I would say overall, this was actually good, at least in the sense that it clarified two very different visions. I mean, these were two very different candidates with two very different visions for France and for the world, if you like, certainly for Europe. What kind of uh, jumped out at you as the other kind of main points of contrast between them or where those points of contrast came out most strongly? Uh, Well, I mean, the veil was a big, big moment of contrast between the two in their approach. I mean... um, Just to jump in, this is Marine Le Pen has said that she would ban the wearing of the veil in public places. And Emmanuel Macron was saying you would basically be then outlawing the wearing of religious symbols and saying that you would be, in a sense, marginalising Muslims, taking them out of French society, right? Exactly. And there was a moment where he really tried to push her into a corner saying, when you're talking about the veil, you mean the headscarf. And I think that that is something that bears mentioning is that we're talking in French, we're talking about the voile, the veil, but we're actually talking about the simple headscarf, which is something that, you know, a lot of people wear, not the burqa, which is was a big debate in France as to whether a face covering veil could be allowed. And there they really Macron really tried to um, oppose a different vision to Marine Le Pen. So, for example, he was talking about we'd be, you know, the country of enlightenment, taking the step, like being the first country to ban the headscarf. Le Pen, je suis en train de vous dire que la France, patrie des lumières, de l'universel, serait le premier pays au monde à interdire les signes religieux dans l'espace public. Le premier pays au monde. C'est ça ce que vous proposez. And, uh, you know, this would lead to civil war. So very strong words indeed. And Marine Le Pen, obviously, she... It's a difficult topic for her because it is something that kind of really sends her back to her far right roots. And she's tried to spin it as something feminist. Uh, So, for instance, saying that women who come from uh, impoverished neighborhoods where they say that they're forced to wear the veil because or else they get harassed on the street and that she's standing up against Islamism and he's not. So you had a a real big clash of of visions there on, on the headscarf. Yeah, and he was obviously making the point also that um, she was, you know, conflating a bunch of things that should be very separate, namely Islamism, terrorism and Islam and the headscarf. So, as you say, something that perhaps appealed to her old base, but if she was trying to reach out beyond it, which is what she's tried to do throughout this campaign, particularly by focusing on the cost of living, not a topic that she really wants to dwell on. Matt, I mean, I don't think you got the chance to watch all of this, but what do you think the rest of Europe, I'm going to make you spokesman for the rest of Europe, uh, what are they thinking about it? I think that if you look back at other big debates like this in other countries, especially coming so late in the campaign and given the distance between the two of them, it really came down to whether or not Macron was going to self-destruct this time as Le Pen did the last time around. She really needed, I think, to score a knockout blow here. And clearly that didn't happen. So I think the perception is 
a sigh of relief. People feel that he is likely to win on Sunday. It's obviously not a sure thing, but given that most viewers of this debate will know where the two politicians stand on all of these issues, I don't think it was so much about convincing people anymore as avoiding disaster. And I I think it's interesting, this idea that Macron had to avoid appearing arrogant. I always thought that was a prerequisite for a a French presidential candidate, certainly if you look at the recent incumbents of that office. So I, I tend to think that that probably didn't hurt him as much. And his attack on her for being Putin's lapdog, basically, I think was very effective, at least to an international audience, given everything that's going on, not that they're going to be voting. But it also seemed to me that when he he called Putin uh, her banker, that that also, you know, helped kind of defang maybe some of the criticism against him for being a banker himself and having, you know, these ties to the financial world, which he is often accused of. Some might say that arrogance would also be a characteristic of, um, you know, Austrian-American Twitter provocateurs, but um, we can leave that there. But I did, <laughs> Only some, some, some Only you know, some critics might argue that. But uh, Clear, we'll let you jump off at this stage. Uh, we know it's a pretty gruelling schedule at the moment covering this campaign, uh, but it is coming to a final conclusion before the parliamentary elections anyway on Sunday. So we'll be watching out for your coverage in the coming days. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, Matt, uh, you're going to stick around so that we can talk just a little bit about Germany and Olaf Scholz and um, his latest statement on the war in Ukraine. Earlier this week, there was a big video conference of world leaders convened by Joe Biden and Olaf Scholz gave a a press statement, press conference afterwards as uh, in his current role, I think, as chair of the G7 group. Heute Nachmittag habe ich mit dem amerikanischen, dem französischen und dem polnischen Präsidenten, mit den Ministerpräsidenten von Kanada, Italien und Russland. Und das sah like quite a long kind of recap of positions that he has already stated. Um, I saw someone saying that he gave a press conference to announce nothing, which did remind me of Seinfeld, you know, famously the sitcom about nothing. I think I can sum up the show for you with one word. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? Nothing. What does that mean? The show is about nothing. Was it as devoid of news as that? What did you make of it? Unfortunately, it was. I think that a lot of people were hoping that after these weeks of intensive debate in Germany about whether or not. Berlin was going to finally agree to send heavy weaponry into Ukraine, that he would have something substantial to say. But he really sort of looked to be still in the throes of this Hamlet-like struggle, you know, about where Germany's fate is going to lie as a result of, of this decision, which he still hasn't made. And I think it is very controversial within his own social democratic party. He doesn't want really to do it, it seems. Uh, He knows that there's a lot of pressure from the public in Germany to do more, but there's also from his own ranks pressure to kind of kick the can down the road, which is essentially what he has done. And I think that 
it is going to come to a head sooner or later. But uh, the, the press conference was, was not sort of a uh, moment of great leadership, let's put it that way. What do you think is behind that hesitation or, or explain to our listeners, you know, what is it in the SPD that makes this a particularly hard decision for them? Well, the party has traditionally been, uh, you know, very reluctant to do anything that would upset Russia, as 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 we and others have have written about extensively. There's this sense that, you know, Germany needs to act as a bridge builder with with Russia. This old idea of Ostpolitik, which many people still believe in, and there is a lot of resistance in the party to doing anything that the Russians might perceive as making Germany an active participant in this war with Russia. And but they already jumped over one hurdle there, right, by sending what they, you know, what are termed defensive weapons. Why is this next step suddenly so much harder? Well, basically because now we would be talking about things like tanks and weaponry you could use in a, on an offensive uh, basis. And uh, we're actually going to discuss that exact point in just a moment in our interview this week. Okay, well, we'll hear that interview in just a few moments. But uh, for now, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. But first, if you're interested in the French election, we'll be holding a live discussion broadcast on Twitter on Sunday night, unpacking the result and its implications for France and for Europe. Clea, Matt and I will be taking part in that, along with other members of our French team. It will be at 10pm Central European time on Sunday evening. We'll be sure to include a link to that in our show notes so you know how to join us or just keep an eye on the Political Europe Twitter feed on Sunday evening. It would be great to have you with us live, but if you can't make it, fear not. We'll feature highlights of the conversation in a special edition of EU Confidential, which you can expect in your feed early Monday morning. So be sure to subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening so you get our episodes as soon as they're published. Now, coming up right after this short message, we'll get to that interview that Matt mentioned on Germany's dilemma over Russia and Ukraine. Stay with us. A message from the EPP Group. The Green Deal is the supposed growth agenda. This means that digital and industrial objectives need to be on equal footing with climate objectives, as all depend on each other. To achieve this, we need concrete and synchronized strategies for industrial ecosystems. The EPP Group hosts an Industry Days event with executives and business organizations to discuss how a consistent public policy across different policy instruments can support European industry through these complex transitions. What's needed is the full Green Deal, the green agenda to work towards sustainability, and a deal for EU industry to facilitate it in order to deliver on its objectives while remaining globally competitive. Follow the EPP Group Industry Days on the 25th and 26th of April. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Now, as we've discussed, Germany is caught in a dilemma over Russia's war in Ukraine when it comes to whether to supply heavy weaponry, which the Ukrainian government says it needs urgently to counter Russia's aggression. Matt, you've been talking to Gustav Gressel, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, think tank. Uh, Tell us a bit more about him first. Gustav is somebody who has been very critical of German policy over the years and has been kind of a a lone voice in the German debate as a Russia hawk, as it were, warning about Putin and Russia and what was at stake here in Ukraine. And uh, since the war started, well, he's basically been proven right on all of these fronts and has become something of a star in the German think tank community. Okay, so now let's hear highlights of your conversation with Gustav. I'd like to start with a question about the country where you and I both live, Germany, which is in the midst of what looks like an almost existential struggle about whether or not they should send heavy weaponry to Ukraine to do more. What do you think is really going on here in this German debate? What is it really about? There are two problems. First of all, the state of the debate or the state of German policy. But I think the even bigger problem is the state of government communication of Olaf Scholz in particular. Germany is not in a very good position to provide arms to Ukraine. The Bundeswehr has been underfunded for decades. That's openly known. The defense industry has cut a lot of savings because a lot of programs were scaled back. So there's limited production capability. And a lot of the things that Germany produces are produced to NATO standards and for for allied NATO or domestic consumption. And sort of introducing them in Ukraine requires training and logistical preparation because, of course, Ukraine did not handle any of these systems before. So all of that makes it difficult, but not impossible. And basically, the German chancellor explains that delivering arms is outrightly impossible. And he says that, well, you can't take any weapons from the Bundeswehr because the Bundeswehr is underfunded. Yes, fine. But there are a lot of weapons, arguably not the best shape, but still they're there, which were phased out in the Bundeswehr. They're not used by the Bundeswehr anymore. The Bundeswehr is not the legal owner of them anymore. They're given back to defense industry and the defense industry wants to sell them. And the government is not communicating that these systems are there and what to do with them because they don't want to have the discussion about it. 
and they are they are basically ignoring this fact. The same thing is about production. Uh, yes, we have, for example, the Ukrainians want air defense systems, which are now currently being produced for Egypt as an export customer. And the defense industry can't say, well, we like Ukraine more, we will give these missiles to them. That's not how it works. You have contracts. To get out of uh, such contracts or to skip priorities, the federal government would have to state that it's in Germany's national interest to prioritize Ukraine over other customers and basically invoke its own clauses on, on national security needs to supply Ukraine, which is what sort of Schultz doesn't even discuss. And, and the last thing is uh, sort of training and equipment, with, uh, sort of training, which is arguable. Yes, you need to train Ukrainians logistically and, and in terms of operating weapon systems that they aren't used to. But... The Germans use this as, as an excuse not to do anything because other countries have long started to train Ukrainian soldiers and logistical personnel on weapon systems they intend to deliver in the coming future or as the Americans are already delivering at the time. And again, the, the Chancellor is not even discussing this. They are hiding behind uh, empty catchphrases which don't match up reality and the German press is full of the chancellor didn't say the truth here. The chancellor didn't say the truth there. The problem is, is sort of these lists on what is available. They are an open secret in Berlin. Everybody knows what is available. And the chancellor pretends that things are otherwise. And that is creating, that is destroying trust all across Europe. In Eastern Europe, people shake their hands. People in Washington shake their heads. They say, that can't be true. That can't be, that can't be Europe in the 21st century. But do you think that this is really about politics? I mean, wh why isn't Schultz willing to take uh, these steps and sort of pretending that there are all of these, these hurdles there, which, as you've just laid out, are really exaggerated at the end of the day? Yeah, um, well, he's in a difficult position with his own party. Um, there, there is a considerable pacifist wing in the Social Democratic Party. Uh, Scholz himself is very much concerned that Germany might be dragged into a war, which I think is exaggerated. But if he fears so, he needs to tell people and he needs to discuss his, his fears and intentions. But what do you make of this argument that we hear often that, well, if we were to deliver heavy weaponry, that would make us a direct participant in the conflict effectively? especially given that the United States and other allies are going to do this anyway. So is it really credible to say that Germany as a member of NATO, by not delivering heavy weapons, is somehow shielding itself from retribution from the Russians eventually, given that it's in the same boat as everybody else who is delivering those weapons? The, the retribution stuff is what they really fear. I mean, all the other... Uh, sort of reasons they talk in public, they are bogus and they are the pretext. But the repercussions is something they really fear. Now, I don't think this is a very good argument. First of all, there, of course, is the legal side that it's allowed to supply weapon. The second thing is that the Soviet Union and Russia does the same with war wedging parties who are up against us. Third, yes, um, you have to take some rules into account that your own territory is not used for launching strikes. I think the training issue on allied territory is the fishiest one, uh, but it's done in Poland, so not in Germany anyway, even on, on equipment that uh, is of German origin. Or you can hire 
a lot of these things uh, can be circumvented if you want. You can hire contractors who do training in Ukraine. This kind of stuff is all solvable. Plus, the Americans have explicitly stated that they will shield and support countries, allied countries, who supply Ukraine with weapons. If you have backing from Washington, things are different, arguably, than if you were to do this alone. Uh, if Germany were completely alone, of course, one could understand that you are reluctant. But Right, right. If we look at the arms that Ukraine has received since the war began, most of which are coming from the United States and the UK, can Germany really make a difference here? I mean, if you look at the debate as we follow it on a daily basis, one could get the impression that, you know, the, from a German perspective, that future of Ukraine might depend on whether Germany actually starts delivering a meaningful number of weapons here. But from a sort of more analytical point of view, looking at the kinds of weapons they have, what they're getting from the United States, other NATO allies, does it really matter what Germany does here in the end? Well, of course, not so much. Um, it's more about the German status within the EU, because not only sort of the way Germany is reluctant, and by the way, Germany is much more reluctant, for example, than France delivering weapons. The, the French just keep it secret what they are delivering, but they're delivering much more than the Germans. Uh, that is undermining Germany's position in Europe, because for most of the Europeans, including Italy, including Spain, uh, kind of countering Putin's imperialism in Ukraine is a key strategic objective. And if you don't contribute to the key strategic objective of all your allies, you're seen as the odd part. But the thing Germany really could do if it were willing to, and where all the longer delivery times of German weapon systems would not be such a critical issue, is supply Eastern NATO members with equipment so that they can phase out their Soviet legacy equipment, which Ukraine can use immediately without training, without a big fuss, without new logistical structures. But it would require planning. It would require consultation across NATO alliance, which Schultz said he would do, but actually he hasn't done. And that is a huge problem because there are a lot of allies uh, who are just waiting for Germany to decide whether to go this or that way. Right. And Germany is not deciding anything. But but do you think that the the fallout of this ultimately, because as you've said, there is a lot of uh, sort of head shaking going on in NATO and the EU about the German debate and about Germany's failure to step up here. Do you think that strategic autonomy, this idea that Europe could one day be independent from the United States and NATO is essentially dead now? Yes, it is essentially dead. And you see that in Finland and Sweden uh, with basically the NATO debate. Uh, they see how much of a difference U.S. direct support is. They also see how much of a difference being inside an alliance with the United States or not being part of an alliance with the United States inside is and they're making the conclusion from it. In terms of Germany and its role in NATO and the EU, how do you think it is going to look five years from now, 10 years from now? Will Germany be a, very much a 
diminished force within the Western alliance as a result of its actions here over the last several weeks? If I could make a comparison, I would compare it probably to Italy under Silvio Berlusconi, uh, where you have a country that has a actually an industrial might that has technological skills that is economically quite big and large, but has no big say in Europe compared to what it could have because of political isolation. And I that that would be sort of the spot I see Germany in. Germany is, of course, too big to kind of completely evaporate from the European landscape just because of what's happening policy-wise. But Germany will, on the other hand, first of all, it is not a leader anymore. You see this clearly in the consultation, how often the Americans, how often other countries consult with one another. They take France much more, depending on the outcome of this Sunday's election, but Usually they, they now pivot much more to France than to other countries or talk bilaterally to, to the countries in the eastern flank. Uh, Germany has, has lost that coordinating function as a mediator between sort of the economic northeast and the economic southwest. It has lost the coordinator between eastern flank, southern flank countries. It has lost the special value in Washington. Uh, is pretty much alone. And of course, Germany will continue to be big and by the sheer size and share of votes in the council will be asked now and then, but it has lost its ability to shape events. And it has lost its kind of insider status of a country that needs to be carried along with whatever you plan policy-wise within you. Um, so I think Berlusconi's Italy is, is what comes closest to what will be the immediate future of Germany. Well, we're going to have to leave it on that pessimistic note. Gustav, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks to Matt for bringing us that conversation with Gustav Gressel. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember that we have a live conversation on Twitter coming to you this Sunday at 10pm Central European time with analysis of the French presidential election results. And there will be a special edition of the podcast dropping into your feed early Monday morning as well. You can always email us with your ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks this week to Noah Zan and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.